0: are new, uh, you have jumped in in the the heart and really we're moving toward the back end of a series that we've been in since mid-September, a series in the book of Hebrews. Um, But rest assured, even if you are here for the first, second, third time, uh, we'll attempt to catch you up to speed. Um, That's something that we try to do. Uh, We try to to work through the full counsel of God's Word by uh, walking through books of the Bible. We also um, take topical rest stops from time to time. We did that in January as we walked through a four-week series on the church. But um, let me just say this before we even jump in this morning. Uh, if you've never been a part of a church experience where you've walked through a book of the Bible from start to finish, I would I would encourage you to connect With us in the coming weeks, post Easter, which is April 1st, so April the 8th, we're going to jump into our next sermon series, which is going to be a walk through the book of Esther. And and that is a phenomenal, fantastic book of the Bible, as all of the books of the Bible are. Um, But it's unique in the sense that uh, you don't see God mentioned once, and yet God's fingerprints are all over that book of the Bible. So if you're one of those people who's like, man, I, I don't, I'm not sure I see God at work in my life, is He there? Great opportunity to connect and explore how God works in in the unseen moments of our lives. He's actually very much near. Uh, But for now, we're going to continue to plow through the book of Hebrews, a book that is unique uh, in and of itself in that it it puts on display the, the reality that the Bible is not a book filled with just a bunch of piecemeal stories that are loosely connected with one another, but rather the Bible tells one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing. Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so, believing that an eye full of the Savior is what his battle-inflicted audience needs to hear, he spends the first ten chapters putting Jesus on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. If you were around back in the fall, uh, you walked with us through those ten chapters and just basically got hosed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 11 and beyond represents a shift, which is why uh, we established chapter 11 as the beginning of part two of this series. It's not a shift in the sense that the final three chapters have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, but rather it's a shift in the sense that uh, the author wants us to understand that something actually happens as we behold the Jesus of Hebrews chapters 1 through 10 that all of those glorious truths about Jesus in those first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible are meant to create a settled confidence in us, a confidence in God and his promises, a confidence that keeps us persevering, keeps us enduring, keeps us trusting God, a confidence that drives us to use the language of Hebrews chapter 12 to, to continue to run the race with joyful endurance. Shedding sin and weight so that we might run unencumbered, unimpeded toward Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Looking to the joy that's ours at the finish line. The joy of everlasting life. The joy of everything sad coming untrue. The joy of being part of the most glorious happily ever after the world has ever known. The joy of seeing Jesus face to face and being eternally satisfied in him. Which is the greatest gift of the gospel. That we gain God. Trusting. Going back to last week, in the midst of hardships that God has not abandoned us, trusting that we have a loving Father who who doesn't just love us enough to adopt us as his own, he loves us so much that he'll do everything he can to make our hearts happy in him, even if it means walking with us through the furnace of affliction. This morning, we encounter a little bit more of what the call to action looks like. As we see and savor Jesus, what is that meant to create in us? We get to see more of what it looks like to run the race with joyful endurance. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath. One of the seats in the row in front of you, you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought with you this morning is difficult to understand, to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and and we'll jump in because we've got... A bit of ground to cover. Father. Again just the fact that we can begin a prayer with that word is quite amazing. It means that you have made a way for us to be adopted into your family. As your sons and daughters. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. uh, By which we have been brought in. Out of the dumpsters of depravity. And given a home and a name. You are our, our Abba and we are your children. I pray that that identity would inform everything that we see this morning as we look at these brief six verses that have so much to say to us. I pray that if there are those in this room this morning who find themselves faint-hearted, weary, discouraged, that they would be honest with you about that, and perhaps even others in this room. God, that if, uh, if we find ourselves in, in a place of, of strength and perseverance right now in this season of life, would you give us eyes to see those uh, whose hands are drooping and whose knees are, are weak so that we can come alongside of them for your glory and their good and joy? Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you work? Help us to see what we need to see in ourselves in your word, with respect to your character and being, things that we need to see in the very world in which we find ourselves so that we can move toward it for the sake of the advancement of your kingdom. God, would you move mightily in our midst right now? Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the passage itself this morning, let me let me point out something that I think is, is incredibly helpful in framing this morning's text. If you, if you were around for the past couple weeks, uh, let me just say this. It would have been easy to preach Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 17 as a single sermon. We could have done that. In other words, we could have combined this week, what we're going to dive into this very morning, with what we've looked at the past two weeks and presented that as, as one single message. The reason we could do that is because verses 1 through 3 are a call to run the race with joyful endurance. Verses 12 through 17, as we'll see this morning, are also a call to run the race with joyful endurance. And then right in the center of those two sets of verses is this section on sonship that we looked at last week. Verses 4 through 11. The author of Hebrews infuses, right in the center of this call to run with joyful endurance, our identity as children of God right in the dead center of all that. It's the meat in the sandwich, you might say. And so if you try to live out verses one through three or verses 12 through 17 without God as your father, what he's saying is you will fall flat on your face. You cannot run your way into the family of God. It can't be done. You can't earn your adoption by running impressively enough. Adoption is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. He ran the race perfectly, sinlessly on our behalf, and he died on behalf of imperfect, sinful runners like you and and me. We cannot earn our adoption by running well. Jesus has earned our adoption for us through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the beauty of the gospel. The author of Hebrews infuses verses 4 through 11 as a declaration that our identity as redeemed children of God must inform our running. Must. That being said, He does now bring some imperatives, some commands into his writing. He says, you're a child of the living God. You are not a spiritual orphan. You don't have to dive into the dumpsters of depravity anymore. You have been brought in off the street and given a home and a name. God is your Abba and you are his child. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may Not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He says, you're a child of God. Going back to last week, even in moments of hardship and pain, the race is not meaningless. They're the work of a loving father who's committed to your eternal good. Now, in light of that glorious truth of who you are in the eyes of God as a son or daughter, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Drooping hands, And weak knees present a picture of someone who is weary or discouraged. There's a reference here in verse 12 to Isaiah chapter 35, where you have these words of encouragement to God's people in exile in the Old Testament, a people who wondered if God's promised deliverance would ever actually come. We're told this in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. There's the language of this morning's passage. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will. The author of Hebrews is seeking to encourage his original audience to keep believing, to keep enduring. We've seen that theme over and over again throughout the course of the book of Hebrews. He's saying, I know you're weary. I I know that dropping out of the race may sound Pretty appealing to you now. Maybe that's true of some of us in this room. But he says, keep running. Keep moving toward Jesus. And really, as we'll see throughout this morning's passage, it's this beautiful call to come together in the fight to persevere. To care for the weak among us. To care for the faint-hearted among us. Those who aren't sure if they can keep seeing and savoring Jesus. In fact, I love this. The, The word your... The three times that it's used in verses 12 and 13 is the plural form of the word your. This is not an individualistic passage by any stretch of the imagination. This is a communal command to work together to endure to the finish line. No no man left behind. No woman left behind. The book of Hebrews, it's actually been filled with this kind of language all along. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have reached it. Hebrews 4, Therefore, uh, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That Sprinkled amidst all of those chapters going back to the fall, highlighting the excellencies of Jesus Christ is the doctrine of the church. He just kind of slipped it in there. He just kind of snuck it in there. The linking of arms with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to joyfully endure to the finish line. Together. Kent Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, as we run the race, we must exercise. And that's not not the language of sit-ups and push-ups and cardio. That's like exercising a demon. He says, as we run the race, we must exercise the wretched curse of American individualism that so hinders the church. The strong among us must hold up the dangling hands and wobbling knees of the weak with our prayers and acts of mercy. What a... What a beautiful picture of the church. Is that your experience of the church? Fighting by God's grace, not just to make it into the arms of Jesus ourselves, but helping others to reach that glorious finish line as well. Um, we, We sing it, Uh, Or or we have recently begun to sing it, I guess you should say. Uh, The song, Be Thou My Vision, an old hymn. But but James redid it for the series on the church that we did in January where we infused singular pronouns with plural pronouns. So that we sang words like, High King of Heaven, our victory won. May we reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. I, I love that approach to singing that song because it embodies this morning's passage so beautifully. May we reach heaven's joys together. May we help others to joyfully endure to the finish line. And may we welcome the help of others when we feel feeble and faint-hearted. Which I think brings up an important point. We've got to be more vulnerable and honest with each other. We've got to be more transparent. If you're you're weary, if you're faint-hearted, if you're hands are drooping and your knees are weak and you're struggling to see and savor Jesus, the worst thing you could possibly do is keep that to yourself. The others around you who are part of the family of God need to see that. They need to know that so that they can come alongside of you. And for those of us who may find ourselves in a season of strong faith, where we find ourselves enduring, our our knees feel a little stronger, our hands aren't drooping in quite the same way that perhaps they have in other seasons of life, that this is a, a call, this is a command to look around, to open our eyes, to see what opportunities exist around us within the family of faith, to come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been adopted into this family and to lovingly help them continue to see and savor Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This verse, it's really fascinating. It's filled with echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you see that. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Almost verbatim what you see in the second part of verse 14. That the Christian life is a life of striving for peace and holiness with the grace that God supplies. Blessed are the peacemakers. The the predominant way that the Bible defines peace is this. The removal of hostility toward God. The removal of enmity toward God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verses 6 and 7. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's the idea that man in his natural state is at war with God. And if he remains on the battlefield, he will die. You can't win a war with God. It's like trying to smash a bug with a combat boot. And the bug trying to survive that can't be done. Only when you see that you're at war with God will the gospel become good news to you. In fact, if you're a Christian, you've at least experienced that once. The good news that that God offers peace through the death of his son, which is why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He made peace by the blood of his cross. One of my favorite passages in scripture, Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Paul says, "For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus." And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That we deserve to bear the punishment of our sin, of our hostility toward God. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus bore the punishment that was ours in our place, in our stead, before time began, before the first sin had ever been commuted, committed in human history. God had a plan, a plan to save those who would be hostile toward him. That's crazy. And like any major war, he knew that the ending of the war could only come through bloodshed. We read about that just a few chapters back in the book of Hebrews. Yet not our own blood, the gospel declares, but rather His blood. That's the kindness of God. That's the grace and mercy of God. If you're not a Christian, the call this morning is is simply to lay down your arms, to acknowledge that that you're in a war with your Creator, with your Maker, and it's a war that you cannot win. A war that exists by way of our sinfulness and hostility toward the very one who created us for His glory, to worship Him, to bask in His presence and joy. And to look to Jesus and trust by faith that the blood of his cross affords you peace with that God forever. And if you are a Christian, what the author of Hebrews is simply saying is that Jesus making peace by the blood of his cross changes you. It, it, it does something within you. You were at war with God. You were once a child of wrath and now you're a child of the living God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he says, in light of the peacemaking blood of Jesus, strive for peace with everyone. And that's, that's not simply a call to play nice with other people, to live in harmony with others. It's not simply a call to set aside a quarrelsome spirit. Though those things certainly fall under the banner of, of peacemaking, But coming back to the predominant way that the Bible defines peace as the removal of hostility toward God, the, the greatest strivings for peace involve helping others in love to see areas of hostility toward God in their own lives and receiving that same help from other people. That's the, that's the heart of that particular beatitude when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And so what that means is that with respect to non-Christians, being a peacemaker means sharing the gospel. The ultimate act of peacemaking is declaring the good news of a reconciling God in Jesus Christ. What about peacemaking with respect to other Christians? What, what does that look like? Well, well, this is where I think it's, it's critical for us to acknowledge that we all, if we can be honest, have lingering residual hostility toward God in our hearts. Do we not? We all have those moments that we think we know better than God. We all have those moments when we do things that grieve the heart of God, though we are his children. Again, we need a community. We need, we need a band of brothers and sisters who will graciously and honestly help us to see those, those walls of residual hostility toward God in our lives so that we can again turn to him in deeper faith and repentance. That's the ultimate heart of peacemaking in the context of the church. The church needs more peacemakers. She just does. More ambassadors of the gospel who bring the good news to Christians and non-Christians alike. And who are receptive to the good news in their own lives. Do you see how that angle on peacemaking fits perfectly with the picture of us helping each other joyfully endure to the finish line? That, That idea that was laid out in verses 12 and 13 of this community running together? It's not easy, but when we strive for peace in all of its various forms, we actually put the gospel of Jesus Christ on glorious and beautiful display. But it's not just striving for peace. But also holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the author of Hebrews says. Or as Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's it's not talking about that thing that pumps blood within you. It's talking about the center of your being. It's it's what's deep in the core of man. It's similar to the language of the earth's core uh, being referred to as the heart of the earth. It's what's below the surface. The heart is not only your affections, but but your thoughts and your will. And it's even the intentions, the motives that drive your thoughts and your affections and your will. It's everything under the surface. Jesus says, blessed are you if you are pure to the core of your being. And everyone in this room said, we're done for without Jesus, right? Right? That statement that Jesus makes on that hillside in front of a mass of people is an indictment on mankind. No exception. If the author of Hebrews is saying, this is how you get yourself right with God, verse 14, we're all in serious trouble. If you're not a Christian, let me say it this way, the worst thing you can do is try to be one. You cannot make your heart clean in the eyes of God. And the more you try, the more you'll deceive yourself into thinking that you're in a good place with God. We, we don't need proverbial scrub brushes put into our hands to scrub our unclean hearts to make them look better. We need a heart transplant. We need God to give us a new heart, which is what makes the gospel so gloriously good. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. A perfect, sinless, pure-in-heart life, you might say. He died the death that we deserve to die. He died for our dirty hearts. He died for our sin. Our sin was put upon him and he was punished in our place. The most gloriously unfair trade in all of human history. Jesus takes our sin and gives us brand new hearts. That is if you'll turn to him in faith. If you'll renounce your own efforts to make yourself clean before God and cry out to Jesus to make you clean as both savior and king. That's the gospel. You can't make yourself clean But Jesus can make you clean. Similar to peacemaking, coming back to verse 14, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus atoning for your impurity, it changes you. When you soak in that beautiful truth of the gospel, this is not the language of salvation by works. If so, the author of Hebrews is contradicting his very own words, going back to chapter 10, verse 14, where he said, For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That, According to the author of Hebrews, Jesus' death on the cross has perfected, past tense, a group of people forever. That word perfected is the same word we've looked at it before in this series with respect to Jesus being made perfected. Perfect. It's not that Jesus was once imperfect and now he's perfect, he's sinless. Rather, it's a Greek word that means to complete, that Jesus completed. He closed the books on our salvation at Calvary. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10, verse 14. But that doesn't mean that we don't cry out alongside King David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me that the present tense sanctifying work of God in our lives is evidence that we are among those who were eternally perfected by the death of Jesus Christ. That striving for holiness in the day in and day out is evidence of our positional holiness in Jesus, you might say. That the author of Hebrews is saying, become who you've already been declared to be in Christ, holy. And here's the really good news. God actually cares about that more than you do. That you be conformed into the image of his son. We talked about it all last week. As a loving father, he he chisels away the old you and conforms you into the image of Jesus. Which is why we have verses like Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us. He died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to purify for himself a people. That's his goal. That's his plan. He did not shed his blood for nothing. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.6, very famous verse. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, not might, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That It's going to happen. If you are among the, the weary and discouraged and faint hearted this morning... If you're struggling to see and savor Jesus, don't lose heart. And and come alongside others if you're not in that place so that they don't lose heart. Let's fight this fight together. And let me just say this. For those who are losing heart, or maybe you've already lost heart. Maybe you're lying in in the ditch right now in the fetal position because of what you're going through in life in this moment. If that's you, Let me share this quote with you. Charles Spurgeon. He says, Though you have struggled in vain against your evil habits, though you have wrestled with them sternly and resolved and resolved, only to be defeated by your giant sins and your terrible passions, there is one who can conquer all your sins for you. There is one who is stronger than Hercules, who can strangle the persistent evil of your lust, kill the lion of your passions, and cleanse the filthy stable of your evil nature by, listen to this, by turning the great rivers of blood and water in his atoning sacrifice right through your soul. He can make and keep you pure within. And not only can he, Christian, he will. God is more than capable of cleansing the impurities of our hearts, the residual hostility toward them. He wants to do that. But he also wants us to ask him to do that he wants us to, to draw near him in dependence in prayer so that we cry out to him to supply the grace, the strength to fight for holiness. And then we get up off of our knees, off of, out of those moments of prayer, and we fight with everything that he has given us, with the power that he supplies. And that power cannot be exhausted. It doesn't run out. It doesn't run dry. With God, all things really are possible. That's not just something to throw up on a poster. And so my prayer is this, may God break our hearts for what breaks his, and then supply the power for deeper faith and repentance. Verse 15, he goes on to say, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He's saying God's grace is there for the taking. He talked about that back in chapter 4, verse 16 that he invites us to confidently draw near his throne of grace, that Jesus has made God approachable for us, that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. But, again, if we're honest, there are a number of ways that we can rob ourselves of God's grace in our lives. I can think of a few. Unconfessed sin, starving ourselves of the word of God, pulling away from the fellowship of of the church, not approaching God's throne in prayer, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. As one commentator says, I like, I like this language, he says, we're called to some sanctified meddling in each other's lives. That there's something a bit intrusive about working together to endure to the finish line. Again, it comes back to that ultimate idea of peacemaking, spurring each other on toward the means of God's grace in our lives, particularly those means by which we may be starving ourselves. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That by, many, uh, uh, by it many become defiled. That, that's not, uh, some people have, have poorly expounded this verse. This does not mean if you feel bitter towards somebody, go make that right. Though that's a good thing, a godly thing to do. But that, that language, root of bitterness, actually goes back to and shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And it's used to describe someone who turns away from God in the pursuit of other gods. It's talking about idolatry. And and then seeing that idolatry spread like poison throughout the church. He's saying it's first and foremost a call to repent of trusting in people and things other than, than God to deliver us. Particularly when we find ourselves in seasons of weariness and heartache. And it's... It's a call to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus as our greatest prize, going back to the first part of chapter 12. And then, as we ourselves repent, we're to lovingly bring those around us to the foot of the cross in repentance as well. That's the ultimate idea behind this root of bitterness language that you find there in verse 15. And he goes on to make more sense of that, to give us a case study of that in verses 16 and 17, where he says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a sobering set of verses, is it not? Esau is is just as much an example to us as every one of the men and women listed in chapter 11. Esau, as a negative example, is meant to encourage us to run the race with joyful endurance. If you don't know the story, Esau was Isaac's firstborn son. In God's design, uh, the firstborn son was given the honor and privilege of bearing the responsibility of the family and also the responsibility of carrying on the family name, the the birthright was Esau's. The blessing was Esau's as the oldest son. But we're told, according to Genesis chapter 25, that he traded away that birthright and blessing for the temporal pleasure of a pot of stew in a moment of hunger. And not only was that an insult to his family, it was an insult to God whose blessing and promise Esau ultimately rejected, that the blessing was ultimately a gift from God himself. Isaac, as a father, simply acted as God's agent in passing God's blessing onto the eldest son, the blessing that was actually promised by God himself in the covenant that he made with Abraham. So it was a rejection of God's covenant and ultimately God himself. Remember, if you think about the context in which this letter is written, the original audience was being pressured to turn their backs on the new covenant, all the blessings secured through the shed blood of Jesus. Blessings that are the inheritance of sons and daughters of God. The author of Hebrews, he's addressing this issue of apostasy one more time. That's what he's doing. He's speaking to those who are being tempted to walk away from the race altogether. And he's saying, are you really going to neglect so great a salvation that is yours in Jesus Are you really going to do that? Are you really going to allow temporal difficulties to cause you to trample on the covenant established in Jesus' blood along with all the blessings of that covenant? He's saying, don't be like Esau. Don't trade eternal promises for temporal pleasures. Don't sell your soul for stew. Don't stay in the midst of present tense difficulties. What good are the future promises of God? Or another way we could say it, the way Jesus said it, don't lose your soul for the gain of the world. In other words, as the men and women of chapter 11 are examples of faith, so Esau is an example of faithlessness. You go, man, Esau wept. What do we do with that? He did. People can weep absent of repentance. Godly sorrow and worldly regret are two very different things, as the Apostle Paul teases out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10, where he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That worldly grief is a sorrow that circumstances have gone badly. It's ultimately self focused. Godly grief is a sorrow that you've offended God. Esau's regret, Esau's regret was not that he offended the God whose covenant blessings were his for the taking. Esau's regret is that he lost the birthright. You you can actually go back and if you read, uh, we've so, again, terribly expounded these verses because the heart behind them is not that Esau sought repentance with tears, but that he sought the blessing and couldn't get it back with tears. You can read uh, Genesis chapters 25 through 27 and see that the tears are directly linked to the blessing itself. The blessing is what he sought, not the God who blesses. True repentance, what the author of Hebrews is getting after, involves more than tears. Though certainly tears may be a part of what we experience in in dealing with the sorrow that we feel for our sin. I would imagine King David wept greatly as he recorded the words of Psalm 51. True repentance involves turning from sin and turning to Jesus, fixing our eyes, to use that language of a race, yet again on the finish line, looking to him, trusting him, finding our hope yet again in him, and putting sin to death by his grace as we run toward that finish line. So the author of Hebrews is essentially saying, will you walk in the footsteps of the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, or will you walk in the footsteps of Esau? This morning's passage is yet again a call to faithful endurance, to faithful perseverance. And and, and again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. That's not a threat to the gospel. Holiness is not an enemy of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. That verses 12 through 17, coming back to one of the first things I said this morning, are the natural outworking of verses 4 through 11 that the more our hearts are gripped by God's glorious grace in adopting us into His family through Jesus, the more we will joyfully embrace the commands, the imperatives of Scripture for His glory and our ultimate joy. In a moment, we're going to continue on in worship in a number of ways uh, through uh, singing, through prayer. There will be people in the back of the room with our prayer team to pray with and for you, um, particularly if your knees are wobbling and your hands are drooping this morning, take advantage of that. That's a, that's a perfect, tangible application of this morning's passage, to go toward someone else and say, will you lift me up to the Lord? Because I'm not sure I can even do it myself and articulate how I'm feeling and what I need from him. Take advantage of that as we move forward in our service. And lastly, we're going to um, worship through the partaking of the Lord's Supper We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Got a couple tables to my left and right and one in the back by the coffee table that'll be open throughout the rest of the service. You can come when you're ready. In the meantime, as you prepare to receive of the elements, I would just invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, one, reveal to you whether you are among the faint-hearted and weary this morning if he hasn't already done that, to, to help you to see, to look around even this room and, and to acknowledge that, that there are people who are struggling to take another step by faith. And, and, and maybe let's do something a little charismatic. Maybe even go find that person during the next 15, 20 minutes of this service and say, I know, I know what you're going through. Can I pray for you? Can I lift you up to the Lord? Would that be okay? Let's be a little crazy this morning, maybe do something like that. And then also as we prepare to come and receive of the elements, ask God to show you what it means to move toward peacemaking and holiness. What what perhaps might be even those things that are temporal in life that you're clinging to at the expense of the eternal promises and hope that are yours for the taking in Jesus Christ.